This is Sean Lynn Jones. I'm editor of the quarterly journal International Security, which is based at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. Today I'll be talking to uh, Dr. Lucas Kello, who has written a fascinating article in the fall 2013 issue of International Security. The article's called The Meaning of the Cyber Revolution, Perils to Theory and Statecraft, and it looks at some of the questions regarding cybersecurity that have been particularly prominent in international relations in the last few years. Dr. Kello is a joint postdoctoral research fellow in the International Security Program and the Project on Technology, Security, and Conflict in the Cyber Age at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. He's got a bachelor's degree from Harvard College and earned his master's and doctorate in international relations at Oxford University. His doctoral work looked at the origins of post-war European integration in the 1940s and 50s, and he taught courses there on international relations, security studies, the Cold War, and the politics of the European Union. Uh, Now, at Harvard, um, he uh, designs and teaches courses for postgraduate students on international cybersecurity, and he's writing a book on the impact of the cyber revolution on international relations that builds on his article in International Security. It's good to have you uh, with us today, Lucas. Thanks for coming by. Um, I'd like to ask you first how you became interested in this topic, because just looking at your biography, it's clear that you entered international relations and studied some topics that are quite different than uh, the cyber revolution and cybersecurity. So how did you get from uh, there to here? Uh, That's correct, Sean. Uh, Computer technology was indeed very primitive in the 1940s and 50s. So uh, what uh, uh, aroused uh, my interest in uh, the topic were the uh, cyber attacks against Estonia's uh, financial and government computer systems in the spring of 2007. Uh, Until then, the ability of cyber instruments uh, to cause national-scale economic um, and social disruption was still very much a theoretical proposition only. These attacks changed that. So cyber conflict suddenly became a proven and, importantly for the research community, observable phenomenon uh, in international affairs. And of course, mine was not the only interest aroused. Um, This event inserted the cyber issue firmly and, I would say, irrevocably into the international relations and uh, security agenda. Um, Most notably, it prompted the NATO member states to establish, in 2008, a center of excellence on cyber defense. When we talk about cyber and cybersecurity, I'm not a technologist, and I'm sometimes not sure exactly what it means. So maybe it would help if you could just define uh, some of the basic terms here. I mean, what exactly is cyber war or a cyber attack or any other of the key terms that we use when we talk about this phenomenon? Your question hits at an important point, which is that we don't yet have clear or agreed upon concepts to frame the cyber issue, at least uh, from a security studies uh, perspective. Use of the term cyber war in particular is an example of this problem. It is grossly misused to characterize a wide range of actions, even if they have no physical effects. So here's a proposition. If a hostile cyber action produces no loss of life or physical destruction of property comparable to a conventional military strike, then the label of cyber war should not be applied to describe it. The term should be used uh, only sparingly.
What exactly is the difference between you know, cyber warfare and uh, you know, just computer hacking to steal information, you know, espionage, if you will, or just crime to uh, steal information that uh, might be uh, useful for business purposes or for something else? Uh, I don't quite understand when it becomes a, you know, warfare and when it's just a criminal activity. That's another very important conceptual question. And to begin to answer it, I think it's important to understand why it is misguided to think of a cyber attack uh, that does not meet the traditional criterion of war as either crime or espionage. Uh, first, it can be very difficult to punish a cyber attack uh, in, a, in domestic courts if the perpetrator, as is often the case, resides abroad. Uh, second, the notion of cyber espionage applies only to those actions that involve the theft of an adversary's uh, military or industrial secrets. In other words, by definition, it does not involve disruptive or uh, destructive intent. Lastly, it's important, I think, to note that the distinction between cyber espionage and cyber attacks uh, itself is important uh, because each form of action invites different legal and policy uh, consequences. Espionage is not prohibited by international law, whereas an offensive cyber attack could in principle be construed as a use of force or even indeed an armed attack under international uh, treaty obligations. Okay, so what are the real elements of the, the cyber threat that um, you know, we, meaning the United States or the world in general or individuals, are facing today? I, I see a lot of press reports that say that some government official has said that a cyber Pearl Harbor is going to happen any day now. Um, but is that really likely? And what actually has happened in any cyber attacks we've seen, including the ones you mentioned in Estonia? So invocation of the Pearl Harbor attack as an analogy to capture the contemporary cyber threat is misguided. The new weapons are unlikely to produce the scale of destruction and death uh, witnessed in 1941. But I understand why this term has been used by decision makers such as Leon Panetta. Uh, parallels of this sort uh, raise awareness of the gravity of the cyber danger in a society that is still, I would claim, largely asleep to it. The reality, however, is that the vast majority of cyber attacks, so far at least, um, do not contain a destructive element. Rather, what we observe is the use of cyber weapons to disrupt economic and social activity, as, what as was witnessed in the attacks against Estonia. Um, although that is, is uh, changing, as illustrated by the Stuxnet incident, which, which destroyed hundreds of nuclear enrichment centrifuges uh, in Iran. Now, there are a lot of people, at least some, who say the whole notion of the cyber threat is exaggerated. A and indeed, in answering my last question, you imply that maybe there is a little bit of exaggeration, maybe hype on the part of government officials to make sure that this issue gets uh, attention. But are there some skeptics out there who would go a little bit farther and say that uh, this threat isn't so significant and there really haven't been any catastrophic attacks and if it really were a big threat, we would have seen something already. How do you respond 
uh, to people who uh, you know, make this sort of skeptical argument? So there are two ways, I would say, uh, to answer this question. One is according to the opinions of those very security planners um, that you noted, uh, who are tasked with uh, defense against the threat. If these practitioners are correct, and their views are indeed unequivocal about the scale of the threat, um, then the threat to national security is, in fact, enormous. Uh, the US intelligence community, for example, recently rated uh, the cyber threat higher than global terrorism. Yet much of the substance for these kinds of assessments derives from uh, classified information, which makes such claims unverifiable uh, by researchers. But based on the record of observable events, and, th and that is the second means to answer uh, this question, it's clear that the upper threshold of offensive action in this domain uh, is rising. Before the Stuxnet event, for example, wh which became known in 2010, use of cyber weapons to destroy physical facilities uh, abroad was only a theoretical uh, proposition, and it's now a proven outcome. Much as the ability to paralyze the economic life uh, of an entire nation was proven by the Estonia case. So what we see then is that the bounds of the possible of offensive action is steadily uh, pushing upwards. And insofar as the claims of decision makers are concerned, I think we do need to concede that these are individuals who have privileged access to information on the reality of the threat. Well, I realize that you may not have that kind of access to classified information, but could you say a little bit more, just from your own perspective, you know, what sort of cyber attack, potential cyber attack, keeps you up at night, makes you really you know, worried that uh, something catastrophic could happen? Well, I would say that... Um, my understanding of the state of the possible is that a catastrophic attack might indeed be possible. And uh, there are various uh, simulations of such attack that have been conducted uh, by the government and by private industry uh, that uh, suggest that. Um, but what keeps me up at night at the moment is uh, not necessarily a catastrophic attack, uh, but rather a more uh, lower or mid-range attack that might not produce um, a calamitous loss of life or physical destruction of property, but that may nevertheless disrupt our, our economy or our way of life. In your article, um, you make you know, the claim right in the title that there has been a, a cyber revolution, and this is going to have some pretty important implications. Um, Obviously, one of these implications might be the greater level of danger from cyber attacks, but um, you seem to think there's more to it than that. And this is something, well, maybe not quite as major as the nuclear revolution, but a big change in uh, the way international politics has been conducted. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what's revolutionary about the cyber revolution and how is cyber warfare changing the international system or... How will it change the international uh, system, and uh, how will it affect who does what to whom in world politics? The answer uh, depends on the criterion we apply to conceptualize a revolution in international relations. Military and strategic thinkers sometimes 
dis uh, uh, described the cyber, uh, the current cyber age, as a revolution in military affairs because, in their view, the related technology significantly alters the uh, the uh, methods and character of war fighting. But from a scholarly international relations perspective, the notion of revolution. I think has a more fundamental meaning and it has to do more with changes in what scholars refer to as the state of war, that is the regularized uh, patterns of competition and violence uh, among states uh, coexisting in anarchical society, than the means of war uh, per se. So the conceptual bar, for us at least, is, uh, is higher. But even on the criterion set by political theory, we can see that cyber activity is having a limited um, but still observable impact on patterns of international uh, competition. And perhaps the most important is the uh, dispersion of power away from governments uh, in the cyber domain. While states remain the principal actors, they are not alone. And uh, non-traditional players such as private organized groups and even individuals uh, can cause astonishing uh, effects and we saw that uh, again with the cyber attacks on Estonia and Georgia and we will probably witness it again and this trend in particular um, is which is quite unique to the cyber domain uh, challenges the state uh, centric mold in which uh, dominant uh, IR theories at least uh, are cast. When it comes to cyber war, is it uh, easier to attack or to defend? It is far easier to attack than to defend. And not only against actions that would rise to the level of cyber war, but I would argue that uh, it is the offense holds the advantage generally in this domain. and. I would enumerate at least four major uh, factors that complicate uh, defense against cyber attack. One is the number of weaknesses uh, in computer systems that an attacker can manipulate, um, and w which is very large and indeed theoretically limitless. Uh, mostly these weaknesses are unknown to the defender, which is why they are called by the technical community uh, zero or O days. Uh, consequently, it's very difficult to predict uh, the precise method of attack, which complicates uh, the design of uh, measures to repulse it. Uh, second, the most advanced uh, players in this domain are able to insert themselves into the adversaries of computer systems, uh, into adversaries' computer systems without detection, as occurred in the Stuxnet case. This gives them opportunities to override uh, defensive acts, possibly in real time. Uh, third, the defensive side itself is highly fragmented. The majority of critical infrastructures in this, as in other countries, are owned and operated um, by private industry, which raises significant obstacles to coordination when um, responding to a cyber emergency. And lastly, uh, computer systems increasingly rely on off-the-shelf and offshore uh, manufacturers for software and hardware components, which introduces vulnerabilities into the supply chain. Uh, just to give one example, in 2009, uh, Britain's Joint Intelligence Committee warned that uh, components of uh, BT's phone network obtained from China could be preloaded with malware. Uh, 
giving Beijing the ability to interrupt uh, the country's power and uh, food supplies, potentially. So these and other factors uh, make cyberspace uh, uh, very much an offense uh, superior domain. Well, that <coughs> thought, as well as your you know, occasional references to the, the Stuxnet operations, makes me wonder what all of this means for the United States. And, and maybe we could begin by focusing on those Stuxnet attacks, because the, the initial press coverage you know, basically was that the United States had uh, carried off a very successful cyber operation that helped undermine Iran's nuclear uh, program. But then there have been a lot of other accounts saying that its impact was greatly exaggerated, and it only really set back the uh, Iranian nuclear program by a, a matter of months, perhaps. So the, this is really a fascinating case study to the extent we know something about it uh, that may show how the United States can use this operation to serve its national interests, as well as perhaps the limits of a, a cyber attack uh, when another country becomes aware or the target country becomes aware and uh, reacts. So could you say a little bit more about exactly what happened and what the real meaning of the whole Stuxnet operation is, uh, indeed, if we know? So this particular operation uh, remains shrouded in government secrecy. Uh, what exactly happened? You know, so, was it, yeah. so the Iranians well, know. What do we know? The Iranians are the ones who know best what happened, but they're unlikely to reveal it. Uh, what we can do... Uh, in the research community is extrapolate um, from uh, one IAEA report um, which suggests that the operation impaired um, up to 1,000 uh, IR-1 uranium enrichment centrifuges at the Natanz uh, nuclear facility in 2009. And, and how did it do that exactly? I, so know, I know if there was a, a virus involved or something, malware. It, it, it was in fact a worm. Um, and which in uh, which destroyed centrifuges by manipulating the Siemens built industrial controller uh, to which they were coupled um, and so that made it much harder for Iran to enrich uranium that could be used well that's that's a more uh, difficult question to answer okay. but uh, some analysts in the US government uh, and elsewhere have suggested that the overall effects of this operation uh, could have been to uh, delay uh, Iranian enrichment uh, in towards a bomb by up to two or three years. And um, certainly the immediate direct uh, physical effects of the operation could not have produced such a delay. But I think the, under, the, the argument here is that there were psychological effects uh, to the operation. Uh, for example, the fear that um, I Iranian, uh, Iran's adversaries may have been inserted uh, into computer systems elsewhere in the country's uh, nuclear establishment, um, which sowed discord uh, uh, more generally uh, in that country's nuclear program. Are there other examples that we know of, of successful U.S. cyber operations uh, or is it just Stuxnet that uh, is uh, the, the example of uh, what we've been able to accomplish, even though it's debated? I think this is the clearest case we have um, that points to involvement 
by Washington. Uh, but even here, uh, it's difficult uh, to draw that uh, connection um, conclusively. And the reason for that is that um, th the connection is based on uh, largely on interviews of uh, public officials in this country who spoke under cover of uh, anonymity. But I think by on the basis of deduction, we can, um, we can argue with a uh, strong degree of certainty that at least uh, the United States and Israel as well uh, were involved in this operation. Going beyond the particular case of uh, Stuxnet, what do you think um, the cyber revolution is going to mean for the United States? You know, on the one hand, I can see an argument that, uh, as in other areas of high technology, uh, when it comes to cyber warfare, the United States is going to have a big advantage because it will be the, the master of um, how to you know, design and implement quite devious cyber attacks such as the Stuxnet operation. Uh, on the other, maybe there are some American vulnerabilities uh, that uh, could lead uh, other countries to be able to uh, launch successful operations against the United States. On balance, what do you think this means for America? Uh, the, question, uh, the answer to this question is mixed. On the one hand, um, the United States is indeed one of the most capable, if not the most capable, um, uh, offensive players uh, in the cyber domain. And it has the capability uh, uh, to design, assemble, and deliver a sophisticated, destructive artifact like Stuxnet. On the other hand, um, because of its reliance on computer systems for essential uh, economic and social functions, um, this country is also especially vulnerable to cyber attacks. It is comparatively far more difficult, for instance, to find feasible targets for cyber attack in, say, North Korea, um, where computer infrastructures remain uh, very primitive. So I think there, therein lies one of the central uh, paradoxes of the cyber revolution, which is that societies that are most adept at harnessing uh, the gains of cyberspace are also those most exposed uh, to its hazards. Technological and industrial uh, strength are becoming synonymous with uh, vulnerability. Well, that leads to the question of uh, what is to be done uh, in your article, you uh, offer a lot of thoughts about how the community of scholars who study international relations and particularly international security questions has yet to really engage with the cyber revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, surprising since it's been in the news so much. But... Why haven't we seen more scholarly attention to these topics? It certainly seems like there's uh, some need for new thinking and maybe even some uh, policy advice to major powers like the United States. Where's the academic community? So I would say, as a general observation, that the uh, scholarly community, is, at least within the field of security studies, is in a state of uh, technological sleep. And uh, the reason for that is that although a few notable uh, scholarly studies of the cyber issue uh, do exist, 
um, the issue has largely been negle uh, neglected by thinkers uh, in our field, and uh, this is uh, reflected in the scant uh, relevant literature. And I think there are two uh, basic reasons for this general state of neglect. Uh, first, I suspect that our preconceptions as a field uh, turn us away from an evaluation of the cyber issue. Uh, there is uh, a tendency, at least in some quarters, to think that threats which appear to lack an overtly physical character or that don't rise to the level of traditional interstate violence are uh, simply intellectually uninteresting. Um, but second, and this is the more fundamental reason, uh, there is a sense uh, that uh, methodological obstacles prohibit orderly investigation uh, of the issue. Well, uh, that's what I was thinking, too. How can you study something when it's hardly happened at all? You don't have any cases to look at. You know, won't the academic study of uh, cyber warfare accelerate as soon as we get a little bit more cyber warfare? Well, insofar as we consider uh, catastrophic or high-impact destructive uh, cyber attacks, then uh, I think your observation, I mean, it's correct. We don't have um, uh, many ins uh, instances to examine. There's uh, on the destructive uh, end, there we really only have uh, Stuxnet, and on the more catastrophic end, we don't have uh, any such instances. But let's look at other uh, uh, technological domains of conflict. Uh, it, the nuclear revolution, for example. We have only two data points, both in the same war, um, occurring in 1945. And yet that did not prevent uh, a, a tremendous uh, uh, amount of, of uh, theories about nuclear conflict and nuclear strategy uh, from emerging. So I think that is a good indicator of how we as a scholarly uh, community can assess the cyber issue in the absence of uh, significant uh, cases, at least on the catastroph uh, catastrophic side, uh, to examine. That said, the number of cases uh, that involve um, non-destructive but still uh, uh, disruptive attacks is, uh, is, is quite high. Can scholars study this issue if they don't really have the background in uh, computer science, information technology? Isn't this always going to be restricted to the people who really understand not only how to write the code, but to insert you know, malware, worm, or otherwise into an adversary's uh, computer network? Too often, uh, the presumption is uh, no. We as laypersons, technical laypersons, cannot um, examine the cyber issue because a high level of technical knowledge I is required to do that. Uh, this creates a sense of uh, resignation, um, which uh, is suggesting that the cyber issue lies beyond the ability uh, of scholars in our field uh, to comprehend it. I would claim, however, that cyber studies does not require a miracle of uh, technical learning, and what we need is just a minimum degree of technical expertise, um, which uh, reveals to us what the scope of action uh, in the cyber domain is. And uh, importantly, we should not confuse technical expertise with strategic insight, because uh, 
technical knowledge can reveal the scientific properties of a cyber artifact, but we still have to understand um, the social, uh, political, ideological purposes for which it is used. Um, therefore, what cyber studies requires is a congress of disciplines that includes um, certainly the engineering sciences, but also the political and social sciences. Well, assuming we can get the academic community mobilized to do more research on cybersecurity, what should their agenda be? What areas really need attention? And uh, I guess even more importantly, if we were to make progress in understanding the whole uh, question of cybersecurity, uh, would it really make a difference? in uh, the real world, or would it just be you know, more scholars debating one another in, in isolation? You know, so what should we do and why, I guess, is what it boils down to. There's an expanding range of um, uh, theoretical and uh, policy-oriented questions which uh, security scholars can uh, immediately uh, begin to address. Uh, Theory-wise, at the most basic level, we should begin to reflect on how the cyber revolution affects our fundamental uh, theoretical concepts, concepts like uh, anarchy, order, uh, and system, um, given its potentially uh, destabilizing effects on strategic stability uh, and international order. Uh, second, uh, scholars must open up their conceptual toolkits um, to do what they traditionally do, which is to model, explain, and insofar as is possible, predict um, adversarial cyber relationships. And this may involve the application of existing uh, theoretical paradigms, such as the balance of power or, or institutional theory, or it could be more narrowly focused, accounting for uh, specific uh, incidents, uh, for example, an analysis of the regional consequences of the cyber attacks uh, against Iran. Uh, and finally, and I think uh, this point uh, needs stressing, uh, because of the enormity of the challenges of uh, the cyber, uh, which the cyber revolution presents um, uh, for security pol uh, policy, uh, scholars can um, uh, guide uh, the design of policy to affect cyber interactions. Uh, the pressures of decision-making uh, leave practitioners uh, very little time for a strategic interpretation of uh, rapid uh, technological change. And this, uh, as Robert Bowie once uh, commented, they are under pressure to take action, some action, even before the implications of uh, new technologies um, have been mastered. And uh, this elevates the need for uh, policy science is, uh, within uh, cyber studies. And if I were to lay stress on a particular issue of, uh, of policy relevance uh, for study, I would perhaps choose um, the notion of deterrence, which in the cyber domain uh, remains primitive, but is still um, uh, an important area uh, for policy if we look at uh, strategy documents. Based on your own work on cybersecurity so far, what is the single most important piece of advice that you would give U.S. policymakers uh, on this issue? Or, or if, you're, if there are two, that's fine as well. But uh, is there a short message that policymakers need to hear from the academic community or from you in particular? 
I would give one message, which is that there is a tendency in the um, uh, public perception and in the perceptions of policymakers uh, to frame uh, the cyber issue and cyber attacks within th um, uh, the criterion, the Clausewitzian criterion of interstate violence. And I think this uh, misses the essence um, of the contemporary cyber danger. Uh, it's true that the effects of the cyber revolution on um, the military equation is an important concern and, sh and uh, should be examined, um, but it's not a, a, a necessarily the correct uh, framework to apply in understanding this issue. What we see is that the cyber revolution is expanding the range of uh, uh, strategic options and possible outcomes between the traditional concepts of war and peace. So I think it's that middle space of action um, that both strategic theory and uh, policy uh, needs to focus on. Well, I think that's uh, a very important point to end on since it looks like we're just about out of time. Uh, again, I've been talking to Lucas Kello, who's the author of um, an article in the fall issue of International Security called The Meaning of the Cyber Revolution, Perils to Theory and Statecraft. I, I have a feeling this topic is going to be with us for a while, and this is uh, just one of many important contributions that uh, you and perhaps other scholars as well will be making. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to this podcast, which was brought to you by International Security. For more information about the journal or to subscribe at a special listeners-only 20% discount, visit mitpressjournals.org slash IS and enter the discount code ISECKELLO, that's I-S-E-C-K-E-L-L-O, at checkout.